0: Good evening, everyone. I, uh, uh, yeah, please grab a seat. We, uh, we reserve these seats with candles uh, for those people who are really poor, and they try to use church sort of as a date night as well to make it romantic. So we allow um, people. To, to come and sit and just have a romantic evening. That's why James has occupied that table all by himself. He's just waiting for the other person to to join as well. So, why on earth are we talking about stranger things? As a matter of fact, I think there's been a bit of a backlash. So, there are quite a few newcomers here, and you guys are very welcome, but a lot of our regulars, I'm not sure if it is out of protest against stranger things are not here tonight. Um, and I understand why people can be uncomfortable with that. Why? why dedicate a sunday service to something as as bizarre perhaps even ungodly as as, as stranger things and well i mean we're going to we're going to get into that so before i talk about stranger things i just quickly want to talk about why I think it's okay for us to talk about Stranger Things, sort of the biblical mandate to engage with culture this way. So just bear with me. By the way, who's, who's seen Stranger Things? Just by raise of hands. Okay, so there are a couple of um, fanboys and girls in, in the house. If you haven't, then you shouldn't worry, because it will still be comprehensible. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. So uh, there's a, a guy called Karl Barth. He was a, a, a theologian a couple of years ago, and he said that the Christian must read with the Bible in the one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. What he was trying to say is that culture and theology and faith need to speak to each other in a very dynamic way. All right? So it is important for us to know what is going on in the world. And probably the best, the best biblical example of this comes from the book of Acts, Act 17. And I want to quickly read uh, from that. It's a very well-known passage to many of you, and uh, you can just follow along there or on your phone, or if you brought your Bible, you're welcome. So, Acts 17, 16 to 34, it goes as follows. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Him. But as I said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and other with them. So let me just unpack this a little bit. So Paul. Is is very sneaky, or at least Luke is very sneaky, in his depiction of Paul, because if you go to Athens today, and if you went to Athens two thousand years ago, there's one euro that you will find. People would be talking about him. If you go there today, you can buy a shirt with his face on it. You can buy a little memorabilia of him. Can anybody tell me who that is? Say again. Caesar? No. Wrong empire. Aristotle? Close. Socrates. Socrates. Socrates is this famous, famous philosopher who, who, who brought these, these new ideas and he had a massive following and people didn't like the fact that he had such a massive following around him and they were very uh, threatened by all of it. And eventually they said that this guy must we must get rid of him because he is preaching of foreign gods, he's leading the people astray, and they poisoned him famously with a with a cup, and he was teaching his disciples from his prison cell, drank his poison and continued teaching them and then fell over. And this became what's that? He was cancelled in a in, in in a very real sense. And 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 Socrates and what happened to Socrates became such, a, it became such an embarrassment to the people of Athens because they were supposed to protect their best. This was one of their best sages ever, and yet they canceled him. And this, like I said, was a massive embarrassment. So what is Paul doing? He is, or at least what is Luke doing? He is presenting Paul as a new type of Socrates because what does he say? He says he was preaching of foreign deities. And the, the people, he even puts those words in their mouths. They say, he's saying things that we haven't heard before. Those are the exact same things that they said about Socrates. So, so Paul is a new Socrates walking around Athens. So how are we going to respond to this new sage, to this new philosopher in, in our midst? Now, Paul, he does a couple of things that I think is interesting. The first thing he does is he identifies the idols in Athens, and he's very upset. The language there is very strong. He's very upset with wrong worship that he encounters in Athens. The second thing that he does is he finds rapport with his audience. He, he quotes verse 26 and he effectively says, look, we are all made in the image of God. We all come from the, same, uh, fr- from the same place. So he is just indicating that there's this common humanity, this bond that exists between everyone. And the third thing that he does is he quotes pagan philosophers. So you guys, you guys saw it here uh, in verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being, or as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. There he quotes Epimenides and Aratus, two pagan philosophers. What is even more striking, when he quotes that top one, in him we live and move and have our being, he is quoting a pagan philosopher who is actually talking about Zeus, does that sound a little bit dodgy? I think it does. But that's, that's what's happening in, in Act 17. So he is saying um, that these guys had profound spiritual insight. They really understood something about God. And the fourth thing that he does is he says, what these guys were grappling with, that they were touching upon, and they came very close, I now want to give you the full picture. And then he goes on to Jesus Christ. Can you see that those four movements... In that speech he's upset in other words he rejects things that he sees that is absolutely antithetical to the biblical life to the christian life the other thing that he does is he redeems certain things he says this is a little bit off but we can redeem it we can tweak it a little bit here and then other things he just outrightly accepts he, he affirms it he says that is great and this becomes um, a model in which christians can engage with culture we can often just become such a little huddle and uh, hide ourselves from everything that is bad outside, and we we just watch Christian movies, we just read Christian books, and I mean, I'm I'm maybe I shouldn't admit this, but but I don't like Christian movies at all. Whether it is faith um, like potatoes or facing the giants or faith like facing giant potatoes, I I, I don't really appreciate the you know the quality of those movies. And, and, and we, we huddle ourselves up, but Paul gives us this permission to go and engage with culture, not uncritically, but to really go and engage with, um, with culture. So what we see is all these four movements. Now, let's imagine for a moment, Paul comes to Pretoria today. He's waiting for his friends. They are a little bit late, and he's just walking around Pretoria. Now, I imagine Paul is looking at the mansions all around Pretoria East, looking at the massive malls, seeing the billboards, and his spirit is provoked within him because he's seeing all these idols all of these temples to a false god. And he's very distressed. He can just see how these people are offering to mammon and how they are offering to consumerism. And they even have these half-naked people on the side of these buildings advertising stuff. And again, that's just dedicated to the gods of youth and lust and beauty, etc., etc. I think he would be very provoked. Eventually, Paul cannot help himself. So he goes and buys a megaphone at game and he goes to Mendon, Maine. And he stands in Menland Maine, and there he says, men of Pretoria. Although, because it's the 21st century, he probably says, people of Pretoria. And he says, I can see that you guys are very religious. I can see that you guys really try to make sense of the world. I can see that you want to live this life to the fullest and live a meaningful life. But man, oh man, you guys are missing the mark big time with your rapid consumerism and all the other isms that you guys are just messing it up with. But I want to commend you on one thing. I want to to tell you this. There's a God-shaped hole even in your Praetorians, even in some of the English people who live here. And that God-shaped hole I've seen in certain expressions, especially those people who made stranger things. I think those guys were spot on with some of the things that they said in that movie. Now he's got people's attention because they didn't really care about him being upset with their idols. They they couldn't care less about a, a Jew... Telling Africans what to do. But they've watched Stranger Things, so now they come a little bit closer. And, uh, and, and he says, Okay, now i have got our attention. Why do you think Stranger Things is close to true worship? So, as he is about to tell them, a member of the crowd says, Whoa, 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 I haven't seen it. So, I want a bit of context, but I don't want any spoilers. So, at this point, he invites me up to the, to the podium and he says, My friend with an authoritative beard will continue this discussion to give you some context. Now, friends, I've got no intention of making you Stranger Things disciples. But please don't watch it. If you, don't want, if, if you haven't seen it, then don't. There are plenty of good movies. If you don't like movies or series, even better. I think uh, a lot of people waste a lot of time by doing Netflix and Showmax and, and all the rest. Um, but the one thing that you have to recognize at least is that it is a cultural phenomenon. You have to have what Karl Barth said, the newspaper in your hand and at least just know that there's something big going on there. I realized this this year when I I, I, I was conducting a tour in, in Paris, and I've got these high school kids in the bus, and I'm just trying to immerse them in all things that is Paris and we we drive past the Place de la Concorde which is where they beheaded all those people in the French Revolution and we go up the the famous Champs-Élysées which is the final stop in the Tour de France and it's very fancy and up on the hill you see the great Arc de Triomphe of Napoleon Bonaparte and I tell them about Napoleon and all his major victories and what he did and at one point I just hear the, the, the crowd is freaking out and I just think to myself man I still got it I am such a good guide. But then it came to my attention that they saw a Stranger Things pop-up shop next, uh, next to the uh, uh, Champs-Elysees. And we stopped there, and usually we give the, 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 the tourists uh, you know, a few hours to go and explore the Champs-Elysees. There are a bunch of famous brands, you know, Louis Vuitton and Ackermans and Pep and, and whatnot. And we leave them there for three or four hours, and they come back just, it, it looks like one of the Stranger Things monsters puked over all of them. It's just Stranger Things merchandise, and they had to queue for about an hour to be able to go in. The bikes, I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit about the plot in a in a second, give a bit of information about the plot, so don't worry just yet if you don't know what's going on. Um, but it's sort of set in this 1980s, tranquil setting, small town, USA, and these kids are 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 running on their bicycles, and it's it's quite innocent. Those bicycles are being re-released now, okay? So you can buy those bicycles now, that's how popular it is. 80s clothing, Stranger Things, 80s inspired clothing has now made a comeback, and H&M, Nike, Louis Vuitton, and many of these other big brands now have dedicated sections for these 80s Stranger Things type type of clothing. Unfortunately, and I think this is a massive indictment against the show, mullets, mullets are making a comeback as well. So hairstyle has been influenced by, by these guys. And then this song, I'm not sure if you listened, the song that we played just before you came in, Kate Bush, it uh, used to be sort of this goth song, uh, nobody listened to it uh, in the eighties and nineties. At least you just have this gothic subculture. Now it's the number one in so many charts, which really annoys the gothic people because now they are mainstream. Okay, so, 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 so songs, uh, you know, it, it, it's just brought a popularity back to these 80s songs. And then the board game that they play in the show, Dungeons and Dragons, well, that board game sales has raised by something like 250%. So it is really a cultural phenomenon. So what about the plot line? So we follow these four guys. Maybe a little bit of spoil. I'm gonna give you maybe a spoiler or two, but but it's nothing much, you, you should survive. We follow these four boys. And uh, like I said, they live in this very nostalgic 1980s uh, small American town. And the, the guy on the left, the boy on the left, Will, he goes missing. And, and now these friends are looking for him, the whole town is looking for him. And these kids soon realize that this Will, this friend of theirs, is in another dimension. He is in the upside down. And that's something they know about because they play Dungeons and Dragons and the link between, between their imagination and reality is very fluid in the show, okay? So it's not very difficult for them to believe that he is trapped in the Upside Down. Oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? So now they're looking for, for their friend in the Upside Down, trying to make sense of it, and soon they, they, they find a girl who looks like this, um, 11 and they don't know, that's not her name, they just find a tattoo on her palm, so they call her Eleven, or L for short. So they take her home, sort of as a, you know, finders keepers type of thing. She looks like she's in trouble, so they take her home, and soon they realize that she's got superpowers. Now, as these little kids, who are now looking for their friend, and they realize not only has their friend go in, gone into this portal to another dimension, some of those bad things from that portal can come into this world as well. And you've got these demogorgons, monster-type things that uh, that that comes out, and you know, they're not very pleasant. So, so not only are they fighting monsters, not only are they trying to find their, their friend, um, they 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 soon realize that this upside down is actually it could destroy not only Hawkins but the whole world. So so what they are fighting and this this massive fight that they have, this supernatural fight that they have, is everything is at stake. And this girl with superpowers, this L, is very handy when it comes to these, these monsters. Now, there is a massive spiritual truth in this. There's a massive spiritual truth in geeky kids fighting evil. As a matter of fact, geeky kids being the primary antagonists um protagonists against evil why because in the bible kids have spiritual access more so than adults let's read this famous passage from luke eighteen, fifteen to 17 people were also bringing babies to jesus for him to place his hands on them when the disciples saw this they rebuked him but Jesus called the children to him and said, "Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it." The adults in the show are always skeptical. They're always skeptical towards the claims. You know, sooner or later, you have a few who become, uh, become converted to this, nother, to this other realm. But the kids find it very easy. <coughs> excuse me, find it very easy. It's obviously a very emotional topic. (laughs) I find it very easy to believe in the upside down and in this other dimension. But the adults, they just shun it. So, why is that? Chesterton, I think, has something to say about it. When he says, fairy tales do not only tell us, do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. That naivety, that, that way of looking at the world as truly enchanted is something that children intuitively possess. And it's something that cynical adults lose as they grow older. But Jesus seems to think that if you look at children, if you pay attention, you're going to learn something from God. I find it so interesting that usually when we try to do church here in the morning, we do our best to get rid of all the kids. We call it children's Sunday school because we want to learn about God. Well, Jesus said, no, 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 no. If you want to learn about God, bring all those kids in here. Bring that mess right here. I want you to pay attention. Now you can learn something about God. What does that mean? What does it mean that kids can teach us something about the spiritual life? Again, I have to, I have to go to, well, before I go there, let me just say this. I've got a, I've got a toddler at home, two and a half years old, and the world is just amazing. He just loves everything. He says, wow, 500 times a day. And the other day, I was walking with an adult friend of mine, and I saw ducks. And I said, oh, wow, ducks! I got very excited about seeing ducks. And I think I might have even said, quack, 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 or maybe sang a duck song. I now know a few. And, and he, he, he was worried. But the, the point is that... I'm not seeing ducks anymore. I'm seeing ducks through my, through my kids' eyes, and they are pretty cool. All right. So I think it was yesterday. We're driving, and my boy wasn't really interested in it. He was reading or something in the car. And then my wife spots a fire truck. She says, Look, Lucky, fire truck, fire truck. A, I was almost pulling out of the way. I thought something is wrong. It's a fire truck. And we were following the fire truck. The boy wasn't that interested at that point in the fire truck. But we were. And fire trucks truly are amazing. I mean, you guys must take a second look at it. But that is now the world that I find myself in. I'm seeing it for the first time through the eyes of a kid who have not seen it who hasn't grown old and cynical and stupid like the rest of us. That enchanted way of looking at reality is what God invites us to when he says, you must become like a child. Don't be cynical. Become like a child. The world is enchanted. See it for what it truly is. This is what Chesterton says. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. Monotony is just repetition. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, but our Father in heaven is younger than we. We have sinned and grown old, but our Father in heaven is younger than we are. So for Paul and for the biblical imagination, it is not surprising that these guys are the ones fighting evil because they understand something about reality. They can see reality. And they are naive enough to think that they can do something about it. that is perfect for you, in as much as you want to take on uh, as, as you want to start the spiritual life. The, th- the second thing that, that stands out for me in, in this show is that the group starts off as a bunch of geeks and mostly kids, but soon enough. You have more believers joining them, more, be- more people believing in the supernatural. And by the way, that is why horror is such an interesting genre. Hor- we, we always pick on horror uh, the church now for, oh, that's satanic and that's bad and that's whatnot. But you guys know that the biggest director of horror probably in the world today is a guy called Scott Derrickson. Scott Derrickson studied theology and philosophy at a place called Biola. Biola stands for Biblical Institute of Los Angeles. I mean, these those people are like Christian with a capital C and H. And and that's, that's where he studied. He's an, he's an outspoken evangelical. And he is the guy who directed Sinister... And The Exorcism of Emily Rose, there's this new movie called The Black Phone, I think, with Ethan Hawke in it. He is, he is the horror guy. And he says horror is the best genre of it all because it's super spiritual. You always have believers in this spiritual reality, and then you have non-believers. And he, he says it is the genre of non-denial. It's the genre of non-denial. You are confronted with this evil. And the other thing that he says that that is wonderful about horror is that you immediately know when something is evil. It's not ambiguous. Most of the time, the way in which we try to make trendy movies today is, oh, is he evil, but he's actually a little bit good, but he's a little bit bad. What do we do with him? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? And maybe that's good filmmaking. But just know that horror lends you this, this very... Um, I think, biblical lens that says, no, that there is something that is, that is properly evil in this world, and if you want to overcome it, you need to overcome it with goodness. So maybe we need to rethink our strategy when it comes to, uh, you know, picking on the horror movies all the time in terms of what we need to ban or, you know, those chain emails or, or WhatsApps. Okay, be that as it may, these geeks, they are fighting evil. But then you've got people believing in it, people coming on board. And you you have these two people joining. So that's the police chief on the left. And he is this spent guy, overweight, um he's got relationship issues, drinks a bit, and on the right, you've got this hysterical mom who basically just shouts will for the first season. And you 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 have these very troubled, very broken people, and they join this team of believers fighting evil. But then there's another guy, and he's, he's, he's almost a fan favorite who joins the team. On the left, you've got a guy called Steve, and then the, the geeky kid on the right is called Dustin. Now, Steve starts off as a bad guy in the first season. It looks like he's going to be set up as the, the typical jockey um, bad guy in, in most American movies. But then he turns, and then he... He tries to help these guys, and he, he becomes converted in this big fight against the supernatural. And what happens is he starts this very unlikely bromance with Dustin. So he's the cool kid. He gets all the girls. Dustin, not so much. And and yet they become best of friends. Why? Because they were part of this epic struggle, and this camaraderie has Uh, has spawned out of that. That reminds me of the church, friends. When you see a bunch of unlikely people coming together, fighting something, being part of a bigger cause, it always reminds me of the church, because I've said this perhaps too often to you, that I wouldn't have naturally chose you as my friends. I... uh, I, I hate the fact that when I come to dialogue I can never use sport analogies. I really like sport and I'm yet to meet the other person who come here who also enjoys sport. And what is the reason why you, you guys are my dustins? <laughs> um, why, why is it that you have this strange mix of people coming together? Well, the only reason is we try to follow Jesus. We are trying to be, um, we've got the same mission. We've got the same cause. And now there are all sorts of strange people on the left and the right of me. Sometimes they are Afrikaans. Sometimes they are Venda. um, Sometimes they are rich. Sometimes they are poor. Sometimes they are super educated. Sometimes they aren't. But the fact of the matter is that this struggle To be more like Jesus, to love God, to love other people, to fight evil, effectively, is what keeps us together. The church is the most diverse organization that the world has ever seen and will ever see. Never has there been an organization that spans so many nationalities and can bring so many people together who's got absolutely nothing in common apart from following Jesus. And I see something of that in Stranger Things. These guys have nothing in common. There's no reason why they should be in the same team. There's no reason why they should be best of friends. But they've been through something. They've confronted the supernatural, and that's what bounds them together. This is something that you see in other movies as well, by the way. Those of you who like Lord of the Rings, uh, those of you who do not like Lord of the Rings, get out. But those of you who like Lord of the Rings, would see you've got a dwarf and an elf and, a ma- and, and mankind. And they hate each other. The dwarves hate the elves, the elves hate the dwarves, and there's a bit of banter in the beginning. But then you've got this fellowship of the ring, and you've got a couple of hobbits thrown in there as well. And they've got this massive mission, which is, well, you know, save Middle Earth and all. And, and that bounds them together. All of a sudden, they are best of friends, and there is this fellowship between them. But it's not a natural fellowship. It's not an ethnic fellowship. It's bound by this mission. And that is something that the church can understand. In Mark 3, 14 to 19, we often neglect this passage. He, we read the following. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Uh, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, that doesn't look like a nice devotional little passage. But I just want to point out something. There's a lot of interesting characters in there. We can't go into all of them. I just want to focus on two. Matthew, that is listed there, is Matthew the tax collector. The tax collectors, I know it doesn't sound like much, it seems like he, he worked at a toll gate, you know, somewhere on the N1. But the tax, collector were, tax collectors were Roman collaborators. They were the most hated people in first century Palestine. Why? Because, well, they had to take money on behalf of the Roman oppressors, but then they would charge a little bit more so they could make a bit of a profit. So you can imagine that Jews would hate them. And who's the other guy that Jesus chose to follow him? Simon the Zealot. Who are the Zealots? Well, another way to translate the Zealots is a sicari. They were called the sicari, which means people of the dagger. And what they would do is they would dress in their, you know, sort of uh, first century robes, and they would disappear into a crowd. And then every now and then when they see a Roman or when they see a tax collector, tax collectors, by the way, avoided crowds for this reason, they would pull out their dagger assassinate them, and then just disappear into the crowds again. So they wanted to get rid of this, these Roman oppressors by any means necessary. They were fundamentalist, right-wing, nutcase fundamentalist zealots. And Jesus decides that he's going to choose Simon the zealot. You can forgive Matthew for not sleeping well in the first few months of the apprenticeship of Jesus. But somehow, the tax collector and the dagger-wielding zealot we can imagine became brothers. Why? Because they're following the same Messiah. This has always been something that we see in the church. We've seen, we've seen it right from the beginning, here when when Jesus effectively starts the church, by calling these people to follow him. You have a lot of diversity there and we see this in Stranger Things as well. Now, another point that I need to make is that in the movie, despite their best efforts, despite the fact that you've got uh, you know, Mike and, and, and the whole gang trying to do their bit, trying to figure out what's going on, there's one thing, maybe this is a spoiler, I don't know, but they basically just need the girl with the superpowers. Otherwise, they're toast. It's game over without Eleven, all right? And, and there's this wonderful, wonderful scene. Before I get there, let me just say this. Eleven is the Christ figure in this story. And there are many Christ figures in popular stories. So, for example, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings is a Christ figure. Why? Because he's always guiding the people, and he goes into the abyss at one point, he dies, he's resurrected as Gandalf the, the White, and he, he, he gives his life so that other people can, can live. He's a, he's a Christ figure. I'm not sure if I'm even allowed to mention this in a church, or sort of a church, but Harry Potter is a christ figure of sorts why because well at the end of harry potter how does that movie end well he dies so that other people can live and then what happens surprise surprise spoiler alert he rises from the dead i find it so funny that jk rowling who wrote harry potter i mean she's been called the third witch of i don't know Wooster and uh, you know all sorts of horrible titles but at one point they asked her, how's this movie going to end? And also, what's, what's your religious belief? Are you atheist? Or are you agnostic? And she said, ah, I've actually been quiet about my religious belief because if I tell you, you're going to know how the story ends, which is, I'm a Christian. I'm a practicing Christian in the Church of Scotland. And if I tell you that, then you're going to figure out it's going to be death and resurrection in the end. And I mean, that's after she's been a witch, you know, for a very long time in the minds of a lot of uh, silly Christians. You've got Christ figures in Batman, in Superman, in so many movies. And, and one of the climactic movement, uh, moments in, in, at the end of the first season is where, where Elle saves everyone, saves her friends, and she kills this monster, but in the process it looks like she's dying as well. She, she just ends up disappearing, but she and the monster seemingly dies. And it's a very emotional moment in the movie But whenever I see that type of sacrifice, especially one like this, because just before she finally destroys this monster, she says, no more, no more. I couldn't help but think of Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished, no more, and she dies. Whenever I see that in movies, and I see it so often in various movies, I can't help but Think of this passage john 15 verse 13 greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends you know what i find perplexing i don't want to assume that everybody here are christian Um, we've got a lot of skeptics and you guys are super welcome and one of the most common objections that i often hear is why was it necessary for jesus to die Why was it necessary for him to die on a cross? I mean, that's just just silly. But what I also find interesting is the fact that even though you reject Jesus's death and resurrection for many, you accept all the others. You are inspired by story after story, whether it's Gandalf, Harry Potter, Superman, Batman, um, even a gladiator and a brave heart, which is now not in a fantastical realm. You have someone dying so that other people can live. Why are you intuitively inspired by those stories? In fact, transformed by those those stories. But you reject the story of Jesus. Paul says, no, 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 no. There's a reason why you are inspired by these stories. There's a reason why you resonate with it. There's a reason why Hollywood keep on producing the same sort of arc of the Euro. Why? Because you were made to love that story. Because the story of stories, the the story that is at the heart of this very universe is a God who gave himself sacrificially so that we can live. And when there are other stories that touch on that great reality, you are bound to be inspired. And that's why I am excited about movies and, and books and stories told often, more often than not, by secular people. Because it sometimes rescues the Gospels from from, from familiarity. It gives me new eyes to look at Jesus, to get excited about what he did on the cross. Because these guys, when they are telling these stories, are just imitating, just signaling towards the cross and what happened there. If you are a skeptical Christian, why on earth are we talking about stranger things? Maybe you didn't even come. Maybe you would listen to it uh, online. Um, I want to say this. You can learn a lot from heathens. <laughs> you can learn a lot from skeptics. God, in his infinite wisdom, didn't give all these gifts to the church, and thank God for that. Skeptic people, Muslim people, people outside of the church have access to spiritual insight. And we should expect to see it there. We should expect to find it there as well. We don't have to just stick in our little bubbles around ourselves just with Christians because that's where we get, I don't know, Christian spiritual insight. No, 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 no. All truth belongs to God. And if you see a story well told, whether it's a Christian or not, then you're going to see traces of the bigger story in those stories. There's a spark of the divine in everyone. Everybody's made in the image of God. So when when an image bearer, writes a story and it is true and it is good and it is beautiful, you are going to see some of these Christ themes in those stories. I want to also tell you that my faith has been invigorated by engaging with culture. And there are certain movies that I don't watch, that I reject. And it's not often for the reasons that you might think that it's just Um, explicit or just violent or whatever I I reject those movies because I've watched them and I think what they are preaching is a bad idea okay but then there are so many movies that I redeem that I say yes you've got it you've got it somewhat right and I can learn something there but you've got that wrong and then there are other movies or books that I can just say boom I accept this even if you're a Christian or not I think this is this is true what is going on there that's the kind of freedom that we have as Christians to engage with reality. And I think stranger things. In stranger things, there are also certain things that I can reject and say that's silly or yeah, I guess that's political correctness and people need to you know, try and put in those things. But then there's so much more that I can uh, accept and other things that I can redeem. Let me just say to skeptical people, the skeptical skeptics who love these stories, just know that you were made to love these stories. The reason that you resonate with these stories is because the very fabric of the universe is made up of out of this big story. I'm pretty sure that many a skeptic would say, maybe you're not a Christian, but you, but you say in your heart, wouldn't it be great if evil can really be conquered? Wouldn't it be great if the world is more than just atoms and chemical reactions? Wouldn't it be great if that is really the case? Maybe you think, wouldn't it be great if the most fundamental reality of the universe is not survival of the fittest, but sacrificial love? Wouldn't it be great? And I want to tell you that it is. Those things that you hope for in your heart is the case. And the reason why you are excited about these stories is because it's just a signpost to get to the real deal, to get to Jesus Christ. And he's not just one of of many stories. He's not just another fictional character. He is, as C.S. Lewis and and, and Tolkien said, he is myth that became fact. He is this hope that we embody when we tell our stories that meets in history. That is what Jesus is. Don't stop at these stories. You know, I've got uh, friends, and some of you might be friends, and you... You go on holidays and then you want to do something Instagrammable, and you might take a picture at a sign that says Cape Town, 100 kilometers, or I don't know, maybe you fancy like that, New York, 50 kilometers. And and that's cool, and you get your likes, but I sometimes feel like I just wanna say, you know that's not Cape Town. That's a sign to Cape Town, okay? You're not there yet. It doesn't actually deserve a photo. That's just a sign to the destination that you want to get at. It's not the destination itself. It's a little bit like when I play with some of these really stupid dogs, and I throw the ball, and I say, go get the ball, get the ball, and they lick my finger. They think that's the object, the finger, but I'm saying, no, I'm pointing to something. Look, look where the ball is. Don't get stuck at the sign. Follow the sign to the true meaning where it will find its ultimate conclusion, and that is in Jesus, the one who defeated evil in a great act of sacrificial love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, we are moved by, by your story. We are humbled by this story of, of you giving yourself so that we can live. Love knows nothing greater than this, so that one man can lay down his life for his friends. You took it one step further. You lay down your life for even your enemies. Lord, I pray that that, that story will just be melted into our hearts. Some of us are, have been Christians for a long time. And sometimes we forget just the power of the gospel. And then it is our prayer this evening, Lord, that some of these movies would remind us of that. Some of these stories would remind us just of the power of what you did for us. Lord, I also pray for, for many of us who are maybe seeking and who's not quite sure about you. Who might be inspired by these stories who really hope that the universe would work like that but they 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 just cannot see you they just cannot make that step and and it is our prayer lord that you will make yourself known to them Lord, thank you that we can be part of this community who follows you on this on this mission to bring your heaven on earth to bring your kingdom on earth thank you lord that we can join you in that and and thank you for just all the joys that comes with being part of that team of, um, of, of different people with the same mission. Lord, I pray also that we will learn from, from these movies and also from your gospel that for us to really understand your kingdom, we need to allow ourselves to be enchanted by this world again. We must be born again as it were we must see the world as you see it full of beauty full of possibility forgive us lord where we've gone cynical and old and help us to give to get something of your infant heart lord to to just see the world for what it truly really is lastly lord we thank you for what you did on the cross where you defeated evil so that we can live in jesus name we